Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Verkett-Gray, Deputy Editor Natalie Bannerman, and Special Guest Jürgen Hattier, who is the CTO for the EMEA region at Siena. Jürgen, welcome to the Digital Digest. Thank you, Melanie. I'm really delighted to be here today. Well, Jürgen, it's great to have you with us today, and we will be coming back to you very soon to talk about sustainable network operations. Um, but first, to start this week's episode, a quick roundup of the latest headlines. This week, we have heard that Vion has bid farewell to Algeria after selling its 45.57% stake in Jezi to a government-controlled investor. In Australia, TPG has claimed two 5G firsts in the last week, one using kit from Samsung and another from Nokia. Fire Brazil, the wholesale fiber network jointly owned by Telefonica and CDPQ, has gone live and its first customer is Telefonica Brazil's Fivo. And in India, the Prime Minister has reshuffled his cabinet, um, with the IT minister being replaced. In satellites, OQ Technology has confirmed the launch of its first commercial 5G IoT satellite, and that's development that will bring it close to delivering IoT and machine-to-machine services using 5G connectivity, while Starlink will commence its LATAM rollout in Chile, according to the country's regulator, Subtel. Um, and lastly this week, Google Cloud has named its new president for Europe, the Middle East and Africa region. Um, Adair Fox Martin is new in the role and will be based out of their Dublin office. Um, but looking at the biggest news in the last week, we're going to hand over to Natalie, first of all, who has some breaking news from a number of major players. Natalie, over to you. Thanks, Melanie. Yeah, so starting off um, a few days ago, um, AT&T and Google Cloud unveiled new solutions across AT&T's 5G and, Google's, and Google Cloud's edge computing portfolio. Now, the new offerings are also available on AT&T's on-premise multi-access um, edge compute solution, as well as AT&T's network edge capabilities through LTE, 5G and Wireline. Now, the expanded partnership follows a year-long collaboration between the two who have actually been developing edge solutions for um, the enterprise. Uh, the next phase will see the two work together to deliver transformative capabilities that help businesses, uh, quote, drive meaningful value and uh, build in retail healthcare, manufacturing, entertainment, just to name a few verticals. AT&T Network Edge with Google Cloud um, will also enable enterprises to deploy applications at Google Edge points of presence, which will be connected to AT&T's 5G and fiber networks. Um, also, together, AT&T and Google Cloud are also developing a multi-year strategy to bring the solution to 15 plus zones uh, across major cities in the US, which uh, will start with Chicago in 2021. And the next stage we'll see rollout uh, expected to happen in Atlanta, Dallas, Miami and San Francisco. Next up, the Global Partnership for Ethiopia, or GPE, has appointed Anwar Souza as the Managing Director of the operating company in Ethiopia. Uh, for those unaware, it's a special purpose acquisition company, or SPAC, which as we know is very popular these days, um, and GPE was formed to operate telecom services in Ethiopia and was awarded uh, a license to do so in May of this year. Now, Safaricom is actually the biggest shareholder in the company with a 55.7% share, followed by uh, Sumitomo Corporation, which holds 27.2%, CDC Group, which holds 10.9%, and Vodacom, which has a 6.2% stake. Uh, effective as of the 1st of July, Sousa will report to the board of GPE, as well as Safaricom CEO Peter Nijwa. As MD of GPE, Sousa will also uh, lead the Ethiopian operating company on behalf of GDP Consortium and, and um, oversee its vision for delivering transformative services to the country. Now, staying on the continent, Liquid Technologies and Facebook have announced a partnership to build an extensive long-haul metro fibre network in the Dem Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, the new network is expected to improve internet access for more than 30 million people and help meet the growing demand for regional connectivity across Central Africa. Under the terms of the collaboration, Facebook will invest in the fibre builds and support network planning, while Liquid Technologies will own, build, um, hiring over 5,000 people from local communities, as well as operate the fibre network and provide wholesale services to mobile network operators and internet service providers. 
Now, once live, the network will help create a digital corridor from the Atlantic Ocean through the Congo rainforest to East Africa and onto the Indian Ocean. Liquid Technologies has actually been developing this digital corridor for over two years now, and it currently reaches uh, central DRC. Once completed, the corridor will connect DRC to its neighbouring countries of Angola, Congo, Rwanda, uh, Tanzania, Uganda and Zambia. Uh, specifically, uh, the corridor will stretch um, from central DRC to the eastern border with Rwanda and extend the reach of to Africa, which, as we know, is the 37,000 kilometre subsea cable that will land um, along both the east and west um, African coasts and connect Africa to the Middle East and Europe. Um, so uh, a very critical piece of infrastructure there, and we will certainly be uh, watching how that develops. Now, lastly, Digital Bridge um, has confirmed the creation of a new wireless tower platform in Southeast Asia called EdgePoint Infrastructure. Uh, since its official launch in 2020, EdgePoint has secured over 10,000 sites across Indonesia and Malaysia and is now considering further expansion and growth opportunities across the Asia-Pacific region. In addition, EdgePoint, um, supported by Digital Bridge's um, investment management platform, has acquired a majority stake in uh, PT Centrotama, um, an independent Indonesia tower company that owns and manages um, over 4,000 sites and just over 4,200 towers from Indosat Oradu in a sale lease, uh, leaseback transaction. EdgePoint has also completed the acquisition of Asia Space in Malaysia and is considering further acquisitions. The company has um, also executed on significant build-to-suit programs with its carrier customers in Indonesia, with also plans to extend this to Malaysia. Now, EdgePoint was formed in partnership with Digital Bridge and Shires uh, Sidhu, who is a veteran telecoms tower executive who was actually CEO of eDocco, the Malaysian-based uh, regional tower operator, um, a position that he held from 2014 to 2020. Um, and also, as of this morning, a subsidiary of the um, Abu Dhabi Investment Authority has acquired a $500 million uh, minority stake in EdgePoint. Um, in a statement, uh, the um, authority said that the um, it is committed um, up to $500 million to invest in EdgePoint and to support the future growth of the platform, which is expected to include both acquisitions and the development of new towers. Um, so some really interesting news there um, coming out of the tower space in Asia. But that's it from me. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, a lot of um, huge developments over the last couple of days. And that digital bridge one, which has just broken over the last 24 hours, um, really is significant news. I mean, you've just mentioned that, that Abu Dhabi Investment Authority um, has stumped up 500 million US dollars in their stake. Um, but just to go back, there was a story in uh, by Bloomberg, sorry, in November of last year, um, which said that EdgePoint could amass 20,000 to 50,000 towers in the next five to seven years. So obviously that projection was um, from unnamed sources um, and it was um, published about a month before um, the CEO would have obviously left his previous job. Um, but that's, you know, 20,000 to 50,000 towers is going to require a lot of money. Um, and Bloomberg sources said at the time that digital Digital Colony and its partners could end up paying $1 billion or more to acquire those assets. So day one, halfway there, very, very strong start for, um, for EdgePoint infrastructure there. Well, it's also looking like it's, you know, probably been valued well over that because, you know, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority has a minority stake and that's roughly how much they paid for it. So prob I'm, I'm guessing it's well over a, well over a billion in valuation. But um, I think those numbers in terms of what they're projected to do probably speaks for itself in terms of the opportunity there. Um, and as we know, Tower is a, a very kind of hot commodity at the moment um, with a lot of M&A activity happening. So hardly surprising. But um, yeah, I think it's it's an interesting uh, region as well for which they're operating. You know, Southeast Asia, as we know, has always kind of been uh, quite um, forward, quite at the forefront of uh, a lot of the kind of uh, technological advancements. And I suppose news like this really just supports that there's a, a huge adoption, adoption of digital communications there. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Alan, what's your take on all this? Um, it's, yeah, it seems to be a great market. I mean, obviously, the, the mobile market, the tower market in, in Asia is 
I mean, it's half the world's population. It's more than half the world's population across uh, altogether. If you take in China and Japan, of course, China is not really an open market, but it's fast growing. It's the fastest growing market apart from Africa and the world for telecoms. Uh, and it's uh, interesting that the model that I guess was pioneered in the US where towers were uh, operated by a single companies, people like American Tower, which all grew up, and then Mark Gansey with uh, what's become Digital Bridge, Digital Colony, and that sort of range of companies have become a fairly significant force in it. Um, and, and Europe is sort of following this rather more slowly with some companies letting go of their tower infrastructure to independent investors. But it's Asia seems to be where it's all happening at the moment. And companies are realizing that they've got this great asset. They've built all these towers um, and they might as well sell them off to a third party investor. And it becomes really interesting infrastructure. And it, it shows that this infrastructure class to is a term I don't really like, but it is alongside it's alongside subsea cables and terrestrial fiber uh, and so on uh, in the telecoms industry is becoming a really private equity companies have become, have become a really significant force uh, in our industry. Yeah, it's a fascinating development. Um, but staying in telecoms, Alan, you've covered some equally massive stories this week. Um, <laughs> the week yep. started with some very concerning news from Myanmar, um, which then over the last few hours has paved the way for a huge announcement from Telenor. Um, so what's, what else has been happening in Asia this week? Well, let, let's, let's, shall we start with Telenor? Yeah. Um, uh, this is what happened that um, Telenor Myanmar uh, has been getting increasingly disconcerted about the uh, military government that took power earlier this year in Myanmar, uh, opposing or rather overturning the democratically elected government, which was only a few years old, which came in after the military had been finally persuaded to hold democratic elections. And they... Um, Military obviously didn't like what was going on. They didn't like what the people chose. Um, let's be fairly cutting about this. Um, and they have been turning their attention to the telecoms operators. Um, and I think this is something that the telecoms industry should take note of in other places, including Ethiopia. Obviously, they are in Hong Kong and elsewhere that they hold the key to communications between people. And in times of Turbulence, the telecoms industry takes fo uh, focuses, uh, takes the uh, is, is that the focus of government action to try and stem what it regards as uh, civil unrest. What happened in Myanmar is that they said the telcos should give the uh, government and the authorities absolute access to all the data about people's conversations, where they were, and all that sort of thing. I mean, obviously. Legal, uh, legal interception is part of even democratically uh, elected countries' range of powers, but this was going much further and the companies resisted. Uh, a few months ago, Mayor Telenor, having invested uh, hundreds of millions in Myanmar when it got a license in 2014, basically wrote it all off. And then over the last few weeks, as I said, we're looking at options. And this morning, we're talking on the 8th of July. This morning, it sold it to a Lebanese investor, which is one of the biggest shareholders in MTN, based in Africa, in South Africa, with investments in Africa and the Middle East. Um, basically, it got what it could, I think, look, reading between the lines, it got $100 million or slightly more for... Telenor Myanmar, uh, and basically it's letting the new company M1 Group, which is not connected with a Singapore M1 telecoms operator, um, it sold it off. It will ensure continued operations, said Sigva Brecker, who is the CEO of Telenor in Oslo. It's an interesting company that's buying it. I mean, it obviously needs approval from the authorities in Myanmar, but it's a very well-connected uh, family uh, in Lebanon. Uh, one of the big noises has been Prime Minister of Lebanon twice. Um, he uh, founded a company called Investcom, which was in, uh, invested in telecoms in the Middle East and Africa 15, 20 years ago. Um, 
longer ago than that, actually, in the early days of mobile, um, and eventually did a, a sort of takeover stroke merger with MTN, which left uh, M1 as one of the biggest shareholders in MTN. And now they are taking over um, Telenor Myanmar. And we're not sure what's going to happen, whether it's maybe there's, I suppose, the possibility it will become one part of the MTN family of companies, or maybe it will stay independent. But yeah, so Telenor basically, as of this morning, has said bye bye to Myanmar. Uh, Ubudu, which is the other big operator, there were a few others in Myanmar, but the first, the two oldest are Telenor and Ubudu from Qatar, has made no statement whatsoever. Um, but there's also a few. The Sumitomo is there, and some other companies who have investment uh, invested in Myanmar over the last four or five years, and we need to wait, I guess to see whether they will follow the example that Telenor has set. Uh, so it was you know, a complete disaster for Telenor. I was spending $750 million apparently, and they've got $100 million back for it. So bad luck to Myanmar uh, and bad luck to Telenor, really. Indeed, yeah. Um, but M1 Group, I wonder how, well, they're obviously going to make a return at some point on their investment, but I wonder how much profit they're going to make on that as well, given the situation in the country. Um, but also, yeah, against but, but, but low... Telenor was actually making quite a decent amount of money uh, until fairly recently uh, out of Myanmar, uh, although last the last reporting in May uh, 2021 was that they'd lost uh, $750 million just in a short period of time on Myanmar, but that was because the government had basically cracked down on data and the more profitable bits of the uh, of the business. Uh, um, although it was reporting that increased business from voice, but you know it's over the next year or two until the situation settles down. However, that is. We don't know what's going to happen, and uh, they picked it up for uh, M1's picked it up for a song, basically. So I suppose they couldn't in the long run lose. We will see. Yes, um, but Alan, you've also been covering some other um, big developments this week. Um, Telefonica and their UN development goals. What's been happening there? Yes, uh, Telefonica basically put out a statement saying that they really completely support the. Sustainable Development Goals, which is uh, SDGs, they're called, uh, unfortunately, which is really what uh, the United Nations put together a few years ago. And they are really looking for um, uh, it's it's a good it's a list of uh, more than a dozen goals that the industry should be following um, that the hub well guide the whole principles of development in uh, emerging markets around the world. And it's got the backing of the UN. It was sort of regarded perhaps a bit cynically as one stage, but uh, this week it's just said, look, we are supporting the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, um, particularly industry innovation and infrastructure, obviously, because that's where Telefonic was based. That's goal nine. But it also said it wanted to adopt the other some of the other goals is really key to what Telefonica is doing. And of course, Telefonica's a lot of networks in Latin America and also has Spain, obviously, which is Movistar, and in Germany, which is O2, um, and a, a share of what's become uh, O2 Virgin Media in the UK. But uh, it wants to say, it says it wants to help society prosper. It wants to favour socioeconomic progress through digitalisation, all things that really align with what a telecoms company should be doing anyway. But it wants to go beyond the responsibility, beyond responsibility by generating trust and building a digital and greener future, uh, which I think we're going to hear from our friend from Siena later on. But, you know, it's it's very they have said, look, they accept that climate change is an issue in the telecoms industry. They want to take advantage of the opportunities of decarbonisation and they're looking at using new technologies such as 5G and fibre to reduce or to stem the increasing greenhouse gas emissions. So it's very good. I mean, a cynic might say it was very worthy, but actually the whole company has put its heart behind this 
statement. Uh, there's a white paper which you can find if you look at our website. There's a link to the white paper, and you know it's it's basically putting Telefonica alongside Vodafone, which on the 1st of July, I think it was said, they are now using entirely sustainable power throughout all its European operations. And that's something that they wanted to extend into their African operations as well over the near future. So Telefonica and Vodafone together, I think, are probably leading the industry in going for actions to stem climate change and you know see off the disaster which people on the west coast of Canada and the United States are only too aware of over the last few weeks. And in, <laughs> in the Arctic Circle as well. Over and the the Arctic, where it's hotter, hotter just... than it's ever been before. I mean it's really scary. Yeah. Um, but before we go into the quantum roundup um, for this week um, I believe there's also cloud news from the Pentagon. Yes. The Pentagon had a very bold move back in 2018, which was to say all their IT, basically their military IT, should be run from the cloud. And they gave a monopoly to Microsoft. Um, the two competitors were Microsoft and Amazon Web, Web Services. And if you remember, Amazon was not one of the favorite companies of Donald Trump mainly because the person it runs, who runs it, uh, who owns Amazon, is uh, also owns the uh, Washington Post, which was definitely not a favorite reading matter for Donald Trump. So uh, there was a big dispute. So we could see between the lines that Trump had put his weight against AWS getting that project. Uh, Microsoft got it. A monopoly, people were very concerned about it. So basically, the Pentagon this week scrapped that whole deal. Um, it was uh, called Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, which happens to stand for Jedi. Um, and they've scrapped it and replaced it with Joint Warfare Warfighter Cloud Capability, JWCC. Uh, brilliant new name, totally unpronounceable, but there we are. Um, but that's what military people tend to do. Um, likely to be worth... $10 billion over the next few years. Um, and it said it wants to talk to all really the five big US uh, cloud providers. So that's not only Microsoft, which is sort of a bit licking its wounds, but they, uh, the Pentagon has said, well, they might be able to claim some compensation. Uh, and AWS, but also Google and Oracle and IBM. And it probably share the work between them, which is exactly what enterprises do. You know, very few companies put all their cloud operations into the hands of one company. Resilience for anything, for, you know, resilience is a really big interest. You don't want your network to go down at the middle of invading somewhere when it all comes through a few data centers in the US that suddenly crash. So uh, it seems to be a very sensible uh, decision by the Pentagon. Uh, it's taken a long time, though. It's de delay because this dates back to 2018 and probably was being developed for a year or two before. Um, and it's going to uh, they're moving very quickly. They want to have some idea of what's going on by October. They want to have the first awards by April 2022. So that's what, 10 months away? nine months away um but they're doing a, some intensive market research uh and they've got this will not be uh not be sent off to a one company as a systems integrator to bring these all together it'll be managing it from within the pentagon which has got a cloud computing program office so which is good so it's up for grabs from five companies, um, and that's going to be very prestigious for all of those. Whoever wins it, wins any part of that business, whether they're allowed to say whether what they've got and what they're doing, I don't know, but uh, it seems like a sensible move. They followed the corporate line, really, that you should share your cloud work between different operators. It's the multi-cloud future, isn't it? Indeed, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, multi-cloud is the strategy to have. Yeah. It's um, yeah, so it's nice. It's out nice of to see my window, I can see a multi-cloud future <laughs> over <laughs> multi-cloud future over Southeast London at this very moment. Yep. 
Um, Natalie, you have extensive knowledge on cloud um, and the cloud players and multi-cloud strategies and also diversification of routes as well. Um, what was your take on this news? Um, to be honest, I think it, you know, it goes without saying that, you know, multi-cloud is the way forward. I, I can't think of a single business, you know, enterprise or corporation that has a, a single kind of cloud provider, you know, both for resiliency and redundancy. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it certainly, um, makes sense. Um, as you said, nothing really more to add other than I think multi-cloud is the way forward. Um, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Um, no doubt we have a new cloud advisor at the Pentagon then since 2018. Um, but yes, we will watch that space for, for more developments from the US. Um, uh, this is this is don't 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 forget this. This is immensely political. Any decision by the Pentagon or any big government agency in the US is immensely political. You know, uh, ministers and secretaries and leaders of departments are, are political appointments. Uh, as are senior civil servants, unlike the UK, perhaps, where, well, I, perhaps I should forget that after the last year or two. But <laughs> I think this is, uh, they are, it is very political. Um, the person who's in charge of this is probably going to get a lot of flack from uh, all sides. And uh, But we're in six months into the uh, new presidency, so... I guess whoever wins is probably got a secure future for the next three and a half years. Yeah, indeed. Um, well, speaking of um, slightly political things, but a very quick segue. Um, there was a story on Bloomberg today about Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, um, who apparently um, has and $5.3 million on Alphabet stocks um, in the weeks leading up to the House Judiciary Committee's vote on, vote on antitrust legislation. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one about cloud <laughs> politics. Um, but anyway, Indeed, yes. Shall <laughs> so we move off, off politics into the completely uncontroversial but amazing area of quantum technology? Um, let's go on to KPN which announced this week uh, that it is going to build a quantum secure telecoms network across the Netherlands using its existing fiber infrastructure. It did a demonstration, uh, which I watched uh, virtually this week, uh, where they moved traffic between two places in the Netherlands on a KPN fiber, uh, which was carrying other traffic as well, uh, courtesy of Cisco, um, proper Cisco generated traffic alongside on the fiber to show that they don't interfere with one another and that's been one of the concerns over the last few years that quantum signals are quite weak because they're just single quantum of light and they can get overwhelmed by proper you know the normal traffic but they carry this uh, with a, a quantum key system based in a third place uh, which could operate as a hub in the long term uh, for a network that not only extends across the Netherlands, but into Belgium and Germany and France as well. Uh, current range is about 150 kilometres, but they're talking about extending it to about 250 over the next few months. Um, and um, then we don't know where it's going to go. I mean, it would be it would have lots of applications, not only in military, in government data, in medical data, because that has to remain really secure. Um, and this is seems to be a really good demonstration and uh, between Quantum Delta Netherlands, which is a, a sort of university allied organization um, and KPN uh, has a quantum advisor, uh, Victoria Lipinska, and she's got a PhD in quantum physics. I mean, the, the world seems to have suddenly the telecoms world seems to be invaded in the last few months by people with PhDs in quantum physics. It's quite extraordinary. Um, we ought to do our top 20 quantum people in capacity before the end of the year. Um, uh, but they're going to use a quantum key distribution to connect their data centers and um, users will use a single fiber. We'll use, they will say that in the they say that in the very near future, users will be able to get this quantum key box to add to their networks in their offices to encrypt their data to beyond any imagination of security over the next uh, few years. Um, and current technology, of course, is 
with quantum computers coming along, quantum computers are also the enemy of security because they can process so fast that the current method of key distribution, which has been around for 20 or 30 years, uh, could be broken. Um, it used to be said, well, if you can't break it in you know, a century, that's fine, that's secure. Now they're looking at a near future where you could be able to break it in a few weeks or months or hours. Um, and that's, of course, not only current data, but all the data that's been sort of put away in storage for the day when the technology reaches at this point. So I think people are really wanting to encrypt stuff. Uh, and this will be new levels of encryption. Uh, obviously, there's practicalities. It's got to be rolled out. It's got to be commercialized. That's a long way to go. But meanwhile, in the UK, there's a company called Oxford Quantum Surf, uh, Circuits, which is part owned by the university, which has now got quantum computing as a service, which is now accessible. It's already uh, launched um, and uh, it will be available to be used by people doing medical research, people by enterprises, by uh, it will be accessible through a private cloud um, with quantum hardware that's in Reading, uh, just west of London. Um, and again, this company, OQC, is run by Ilana Wisby, and she is another quantum technology, quantum science PhD, who is running this company. Actually, there's a lot of women in this industry, in the quantum industry, which is really quite interesting. Um, and they're working with another company based in Cambridge uh, called Cambridge Quantum, uh, in which Honeywell uh, made an investment a few weeks ago. So you can actually go out into the world and buy quantum computing. And of course, this is become this is likely to happen even more this year. Cold Quanta, which uh, Dan Caruso is now uh, running, he's chairman of and he's acting CEO. Um, he's got a company. Uh, his company is going to be offering a sort of compute quantum computing as a service operation by the end of this year, and you will actually be able to buy your quantum computer next year. He says. So there's a lot going on, um, and by the time we come back. Uh, as a podcast, there will be, I can just see it now, dozens and more quantum developments. It is just moving so fast. Two this week, I think I did three last week. Um, there's another one I'm going to be doing tomorrow uh, about ADVA, which has actually got off the peg equipment that you can buy to for quantum encryption for your optical fibers. It's moving, it's moving so fast, it's just unbelievable. But Melanie, that's enough gabbling from me. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. That was absolutely fascinating. And we also look forward to your next innovation blog, which I hope will be about quantum um, quantum communications. The current one for June, July issue is live online at the moment for anybody um, who wants to catch up on a roundup of what happened um, before June. Granted, that, that so follows one that was that I did in the previous issue, the April May issue. So yeah, it's almost becoming a quantum innovation quantum innovation blog. Perhaps that's a way to way to put it. Yep. It works out well. Um, well, thank you, Alan, for, for all those stories. Um, a quick reminder that later in the episode, we will be joined by Jürgen Hatia, who is the CTO for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at Siena. Um, but before we go to Jürgen, back to Natalie now for a roundup of the latest data center news. Natalie, what's been happening in the world of data centers? Yeah, thanks, Melanie. So um, probably the most recent and probably the biggest uh, surprise of the week um, has been that the Nordic data center provider uh, Digital Digiplex um, has actually been acquired by the US investment firm IPI Partners uh, for an undisclosed sum. Um, so through the transaction, uh, which is actually expected to close in the third quarter of this year, IPI will acquire 100% ownership of all Digiplex uh, group companies, which at present is comprised of um, eight data centers across campuses in Oslo, Norway, um, Stockholm in Sweden, and Copenhagen in Denmark. Um, the transaction actually brings um, a IPI an immediate and, and strong presence um, in the region, region uh, one that they didn't previously have, um, as well as uh, gives them capacity for expansion to accommodate the requirements of hyperscalers and uh, major co-location tenants. Um, IPI is important to remember that IPI is actually co-sponsored by uh, Iconic Capital and is also an affiliate of Ironport Partners. In other news, um, iAccelerate in Russia um, has appointed um, Andrei uh, Eksenkov, who um, as their new 
CEO. Now, uh, previously, the position was um, held by um, Guy Wilner, as we all know, who actually combined the roles of CEO and chairman um, of the board of directors. At Sencop's major um, exec um, objective um, in the role um, is the implementation of its long-term expansion strategy um, and the delivery of more data center capacity in Moscow um, through um, growth um, in the region. The company says it intends to capture 25% of the Russian commercial data center market by 2023, and um, XNCOF is um, obviously charged with making that happen. Um, as for Wilner, um, he will continue to lead the company um, as chairman of the board uh, with a primary focus on strategy development and building investor and international client relationships. Uh, additionally, uh, Ascenders Property Fund Trustee, which is the trustee manager of Ascenders India Trust, um, is investing over $162 million to develop and operate phase one of a new data center campus in Aerolai uh, Nav, Navi, which uh, in Mumbai. Um, it is the company's first data center facility in India, um, and the trust is actually owned by Singapore headquartered uh, Capita Land. The acquisition uh, of the site uh, from third party vendors is expected to be completed by the third quarter of this year, um, and it will be comprised of two buildings. The first one, uh, which is uh, 325,000 square feet and is scheduled to be finished uh, in the second quarter of 2024. Um, and overall, the 6.6 .6 acre Greenfield site will also will offer a total of 575,000 square feet and 90 uh, megawatts of IT power when the campus is fully built. Uh, lastly, MTS, the Russian mobile operator, has acquired the Greenbush Data Center in Moscow, which was opened in 2018 as part of a first phase development. The company has paid the equivalent of uh, just over $70 million for the data center. Um, once fully developed, Greenbush is expected to have uh, 19 megawatts of power to support 2,280 racks in uh, 24 server rooms across 56,000 square feet. Now, the facility is located in uh, what has been called a tax privileged special economic zone and is already serving hundreds of clients following the commissioning of the first of its three planned modules. The remaining two are expected to uh, go live in the near future, according to MTS. Uh, the company plans to use the facility's additional capacity to market co-location and cloud services to third parties, including more than 25 services under its uh, cloud MTS brand. Uh, but that's it from me. Back to you, Melanie. Thanks, Natalie. Um, some really big stories there. I'm very surprised about the Digiplex um, acquisition. Um, I haven't actually personally heard of IPI partners, but I really hope that they nominate themselves in our investor list um, that's coming up in August, September issue. That was a huge deal. I really wonder what they're going to do with the company. Yeah, IPI Partners is one of those ones. I'm fairly certain I've seen their names mentioned maybe as part of a consortium for another piece of infrastructure, but certainly not not like the the kind of KKRs or the other ones that we write about all the time. So um, certainly would love to hear more about them and what they're doing. And yeah, they'd be perfect for that list. So if they're listening, I hope they get involved. Yes, fingers crossed. Um, well, next up in this week's episode, we are speaking with Jürgen Hatia, who is the Chief Technology Officer for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at Siena. Um, Jürgen, fantastic to have you here with us today. And we are going to be talking today about sustainable networks. So thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Appreciate to be here today, Melanie. And you are definitely bringing a very, you know, timely subject to the table. And, you know, I would love to share my thoughts today with you and some you know, um, results of a study that Sienna did on that topic. Yes, well, that brings us nicely into um, into what we're going to be talking about. Um, so on that research, we're talking about sustainability and the future of networks. Um, so to give our listeners a bit of an introduction, um, Sienna's most recent research demonstrated just how strong the demand now is for energy efficient networks and ultimately efficient connectivity. Um, so we covered this in story online um, and to quote a few stats first of all, um, you found that 42% of British adults believe the future of the internet will be driven by our desire to become more energy efficient. Also, 65% are considering doing more activities virtually to reduce their carbon footprint. Um, so consumer demand is obviously the business case for everything the industry does. Um, but let's talk about the industry itself. I mean, what does this mean for network planning? So Melanie, to, to actually understand what the impact is on the network planning, let me quickly talk about a few of the drivers that we have seen, which have recently accelerated the change in, in demand to our network. So first and foremost, um, since we are all hosting this today remotely, home working has been 
has become somewhat of a new norm over the last couple of months, and this has significantly changed the user behavior and the way traffic is being put on our network. So it wasn't a long time ago that the only thing really that we had at the edge of our network was an average email client and a web browser. But today, you know, in terms of connectivity and the complexity of applications we have, you know, we have more become like a small business that we are running from every home. Also, don't forget the impact on our kids, the remote education that has become, you know, uh, front and center to keep our, our youth up to date while we were in a shutdown. So this whole notion around remote schooling and the adaptive way of learning has put, you know, quite a bit of increase onto the networks. And last but not least, don't forget about IoT, the machine to machine communication as a baseline for everything we do to automate and optimize the way we consume energy and, um, you know, all of these um, components together, create these high volumes of traffic and, you know, those play into, you know, different dimensions into network planning. So to answer your question, what does it mean for network planning? We now need to look not only on the traffic growth, where we just looked at, you know, certain growth patterns year over year. We now also need to look at where does the traffic originate and where is its destination? So not every packet flows all the way from the end user to the core anymore. We have our internet content providers, which have basically overbuilt the internet and which are putting the content closer to the consumer. So as edge cloud evolves, you know, destination of a traffic might be very close to the edge. And that has big impact on how we plan and operate our networks. And then come the big pipes between those data centers where content to content is being transferred. So, you know, these are huge traffic um, flows that are happening between those data centers and not much of that traffic kind of sees the light of day. And what I mean by that is, you know, very little of the traffic that is transferred between those data centers, between the edge cloud side and the major data center is actually put on the public internet or exposed to a consumer. So the dynamic the dimensions of network planning around growth, where does the traffic originate and go to, and how is it, you know, absorbed and being provided, uh, you know, transferred to the cloud, are the three fundamentals that together with an exciting toolbox of, of new technology like, you know, pluggables, 400ZR, but also higher speed links of 800 gig and beyond, they make network planning a whole different, you know, experience and exercise, which, you know, increases complexity, but also it gives us an opportunity to plan networks for a whole better, um, you know, ec ecological footprint, for better reliability, and for a lot more agility when it comes to dealing with, you know, unplanned uh, events that might, you know, challenge the way we have laid out for peak capacity. Interesting. Um, well, in terms of network operations, um, we have heard about more efficient networks being introduced recently. Um, and there's obviously a couple of standout performers in that, for example, Vodafone or in the country of Norway, for example. Um, but generally across Europe, the energy infrastructure isn't fully renewable yet. So with regards to what it's possible to achieve right now, what does that mean for sustainable telecoms in the EMEA region in 2021? So as you mentioned, Vodafone is a prime example of who has, you know, um, put this energy into uh, supply onto a renewable basis, I think what we all can do is actually work on reducing the power intake. Let me give you an example. I mean, on the optical communication that we have been, industry that we have been participating in for, you know, the last two decades, you know, we have seen that just in the last 10 years alone, that power consumption, if you take watt per bit, has been reduced by 90%. So, Think about a car that you would have bought uh, 10 years ago, uh, and it now has a reduced gasoline intake by 90%. That's how far the industry, all the suppliers, all the operators have gone to together to make sure that we reduce the intake. But also, you know, the intake is something that we don't only optimize by, you know, introducing newer technology, transmission technologies that imp improve the efficiency, but it's also how we plan and operate those networks. So coming back to the first question you, you asked me around, what does it mean for network planning? So there was a notion of planning for peak. So making sure that we have enough capacity, no matter what happens, that you know networks are always able to cope with the load. You know, deploying that maximum worst case 
capacity on the link is something that has been you know, a little bit outdated. Not only is it not very economic from an investment perspective, but also the technology has evolved and allows us now to apply you know, closed-loop automation to handle those spikes by optimizing traffic flows or even temporarily boosting the link capacity. So what we are doing by that is that we are avoiding capacity to sit out there, basically idling and consuming those precious resources. And then it's about how we run our networks. And keep in mind that a lot of energy is also consumed as we as we operate the network. And I'm not only talking about power consumption, but for example, you know, CO2 that is emitted by trucks that we send to the field to fix problems. So while much progress was was made, you know, we as an industry are still a little bit challenged of, of rolling too many trucks to, you know, no trouble found uh, cases. And they are not only weighing on the balance sheet uh, or on the profitability, but they also weigh on the ecosystem. So really the end-to-end -end service monitoring, assurance capabilities in the back end help us to significantly reduce not only unnecessary truck rolls, but they allow us to deploy the resources where we absolutely need them to deliver a superior subscriber and consumer experience. That's interesting. Um, well, staying on that broader industry view now, um, but still with your consumer insights in mind, do you think that it's feasible for big players across this industry to set targets for mid to late decade? I mean, we've already mentioned, you know, the fact that Vodafone's really far ahead on this and, you know, they've um, the entire European network is now powered by renewables um, and other carriers, operators, etc. have also made zero pledges too. However, many of those are for 2025 or 2030. Um, now, people aren't going to stop using networks, but given what your re research shows, do you think end users are going to be happy about mid-decade and end-of-decade targets? So I think, you know, we need to acknowledge telecoms absolutely do represent a meaningful portion of a nation's energy consumption and carbon footprint. And it is critical, you know, coming to the first part of your questions for everyone to have sustainable goals. So small players, big players alike. And the big players, of course, have, you know, the largest impact overall, but everybody needs to participate. So while there are many factors at play right now, which are changing the landscape significantly, you know, like edge clouds, uh, cloudification in general, 5G technology, I would think that a green agenda with clear goals and objectives is absolutely feasible. But what I don't want to do is speculate on, beha on behalf uh, of others on what those goals might be. Um, coming to the end user um, and would they be happy about the 2025 and 2030 targets? Well, of course, end users will be happy to see pledges. Um, it, it does show that we are all in this together and we globally care and for our planet and we make it a priority. So I personally see networks and telcos really as enablers for many other industries and to be able to execute on their targets to really optimize the energy consumption and emission. Let me quickly elaborate on that for a second. So. When I talk about the telecoms industry as an enabler, you just need to take a very um, you know, relevant example how we can improve energy efficiency by using real-time information that is transferred over a 5G network to get, let's say, a parcel delivery service uh, routed in an optimum way, not to burn unnecessary fuel, not to make extra mileage, and at the end of the day, still um, deliver that superior customer experience. But also imagine you know, how an automated home, a smart home, which is completely AI optimized, you know, could not operate if there wasn't proper cloud connectivity to ensure that, you know, the renewable energy, which is available at certain times for best cost, you know, will deliver the consumer still the same outcome and nicely, let's say air conditioned home, but at lower cost and at a lower footprint in the environment. So would that be possible without the telecoms industry, without cloud and connectivity? I don't think so. And, um, you know, we're talking a little bit about, you know, the telco operators, the service providers here, but also as Siena, um, we are very much committed that, you know, on sustainability, and you will be hearing more shortly uh, uh, through the uh, course of July, on what pledges we are making as a supplier in the industry. Well, that sounds very exciting. Can you give us any um, any preview maybe of what that may entail? 
So Melanie, I, I am as excited about these pledges as you are, but I don't want to, um, you know, skip the line and get ahead of our CEO who will be making those <laughs> announcements shortly. <laughs> Okay, I'll let you off, but we had to ask. Um, well, when it comes to like the different ways to connect, um, obviously we have like fiber, subsea, satellite, fixed access, etc. Which is the most energy efficient? That's a great question. First of all, I'm glad we got all of these technologies available because there, there isn't a national infrastructure that exists today where one of those technologies provides the services that we need to all of our users. So it needs to be a mix and we shouldn't optimize around one or two, but really embrace the full set that is available. So who is most energy efficient or which technology is most energy efficient? I can't answer that question because it's very much dependent on the scenario. And let me talk about the factors uh, that play into finding this optimum mix of technologies, let's say for a country, for a territory. So don't forget, we all live in a connected world already. So there's a big brownfield out there. So if there's a brownfield out there, you know, transitioning away to a different architecture, to a different access media might, you know, at the end of the day, yield better operational uh, power efficiency, but getting there might be very expensive. Also, you need to look at what are the geos that we need to cover? Are we talking about a rural area or an urban area? And then very important lifespan of technology. While we all know that fiber optic cable has tremendous capacity which will get us you know on the last mile specifically through the next decades you know how much life is left in copper do we upgrade from copper to fiber now or do we sweat the asset and change it later and then you know coming to the to the other part which is feasibility of deployment so is it realistic that we dig up a city in germany with its beautiful pavements and roads to you know deploy fiber so at the end of the day, of course, it comes down to a business case. And business cases are to be made based on the investment, the operating cost. And when we look at energy consumption, I really believe we need to look over the lifespan of the technology use from the production of the actual transport media, be it a fiber or a copper cable, to the deployment, to the operation and the decommission at the end of the day. Um, but if I may, there is one general fundamental point where we can make architectural choices which impact energy consumption. And I don't want to go too technical here, but as soon as we hit any point of you know, optical electrical conversions, we are somewhat creating a point that consumes energy. So globally, more and more work is being done not only to optimize network architectures, but to also bring components closer together you know, co-packaged opticals, even chip-to-chip -chip level connections, which become optical connections. So as you can see on the very macro level, all the way down to the nitty-gritty design details, there are many choices that can be made, that are made, many improvements that then drive an ecosystem of different access technologies, which allow us to provide those, you know, superior services to our customers. Okay, well, a follow-up question um, to that, because you obviously mentioned um, lifespan and deployment um, when you're responding to that. If we talk about satellites in particular, and um, we hear about new launches all the time, you know, there's so much going on in that space right now, um, and satellites are poised to solve a lot of connectivity challenges, but they're launched on rockets, and rockets burn a lot of fuel. So if we're looking at these additional scope emissions and the kind of broader impact of these different connectivity types. Um, in the name of telecoms, a lot of rockets have been launched this year. So where, where does that fit into the sustainability piece and the sustainability of future networks? So um, Melanie, I do believe that satellites absolutely have, have their place in the ecosystem because they're doing one important thing for us. They're closing a digital divide and they do play an increasing role for you know, a more connected world. So there are different systems with varying degrees of reusability and sustainability. And, you know, we are only at the beginning of that journey. And I believe there are lots of improvements to be made. So don't forget, satellite systems are typically, they do make use of those terrestrial fiber-based backhaul systems to connect those ground stations to the internet. And those systems will also be used to optimize, you know, the entire telecommunication infrastructure. 
So maybe one myth misconception that I want to take take out here is, you know, those satellites that they're launching, they're not carrying data from continent to continent. We're still relying here on submarine cables, subsea cables, which carry the majority of all the internal tra international traffic. So those satellites, as I said, you know, they're closing somewhat of a digital divide. They're they're serving rural areas, and they have a very very different ecological footprint to other transmission technologies. You mentioned that, yes, we're burning massive amount of, amounts of fuel during launch, but then very little during normal operation as they are powered mainly by solar energy. And, you know, while we talk, while we talk about satellites, you know, there are also kind of the end user terminals. And I want to just put one data point out there. So today, any one of those satellite transceivers that is installed on a home, you know, consumes about 100 watts of power compared to only 10 watts for a regular fiber to the home ONU or a DOCSIS 3.1 modem. That might sound frightening at first, but if you just think about the CO2 that we are not putting into the atmosphere, which an excavator would you know, expose or, or transmit by digging 20 miles of trenches to deploy a fiber, then you know, in context, that technology does also have a very good sustainable footprint. So um, what we really need to consider, I think, on satellites, um, to, to wrap up my thoughts here, is how can we maximize, maximize their lifespan and how can we improve those capabilities? And, um, you know, there are a range of connectivity benefits which other modes of transportation can bring. And we're seeing that software can help a lot to automate operations and recovery, you know, as well as really ensuring that they are used to their full potential. So the industry is evolving, is adapting and moving forward, and we're looking for faster and of course also more sustainable options there. Fantastic. Um, well, Natalie, Alan, handing over to you guys now, um, what would you like to ask you again about sustainable networks? Can, can I jump in? I loved hearing your comment that you, the industry has reduced the number of watts per bit by 90%, uh, which is a fantastic uh, metric. Uh, and the telecoms industry seems to be very focused, as you say, on, on reducing energy consumption for the job it does. Um, and, and I think technologies like 5G are, are helping that, even though it might make us use more data, it'll make us use it more efficiently. But let's contrast, and I, you're not in the data center industry directly, though I'm sure you, you know, <laughs> you supply them with all sorts of bits of technology. Data center industry seems to have a very, um, let me be rude. Yeah, let me be rude. A very sort of 1960s masculinity involved, uh, involved with it, that the more power you use, the better your data center. It's like a car going naught to 60 in three and a half seconds. They say we're... 10 megawatts data center um, or, you know, Josh Snowhorn, for example, in his project in near Washington, D.C., is building a gigawatt campus. Uh, but nobody actually seems to be able to say what sort of processing power you get for that. Uh, those gigawatts or megawatts, they, they seem to be very coy, uh, either about measuring what sort of store processing or what sort of storage. Do you have any sort of feeling for why they're so coy about saying that? Um, honestly, I, I can't speak to the processing and storage too much, but what I can tell you is that, you know, in speaking to our customers, the data center providers are doing absolutely their best to squeeze out every last, you know, <laughs> bit of performance out of every watt that is being put into, into that data center. And I can talk about connectivity here because especially the data center providers was ahead of the curve when it comes to deploying, you know, new technologies that allow them to be more efficient on their power use. I'm looking at 400 ZR, you know, some technologies which have shorter reach, you know, eliminate the layer of transponder before they feed into an optical system. Perfect technology for data center interconnect, reduces power per bit even further. And, um, especially in the data center, I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of bits flowing between the data centers before they are being exposed to the internet. Um, 
I do think that the data center providers, the hyperscalers, are definitely contributing their fair share to really making best use of the latest technology. Good, I'm glad. Uh, I've just found it very difficult. I'm I'm working on a feature for the next issue. I'm finding it very difficult to get them to talk about how they measure what power, what real processing or storage they get out of the megawatts they're so proud of. Um, there seems to be a disconnect there. I just have to probe a bit further and get them to talk. <laughs> but, but but Alan, if I may if I may add to that, you are you're asking a very relevant question. What keeps going around in my head is, you know, the the expansion of the compute uh, capabilities towards the edge. We all know about edge cloud. You know the fact that you know we will be decentralizing again what we previously cent centralized into those big data centers for the last ten years to get better latency and consumer experience. We will have many many data centers out there in the field, and um, that only that not only creates you know of course an operational challenge for the service providers to you know install and maintain those but also to efficiently divide the workloads to make sure that all the compute power out there is not sitting idle and consuming energy when it should create value. Good point. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jürgen. Um, if I could just then jump in, Jürgen, one thing that, um, you know, I was thinking of, you know, having spoken to, you know, various um, operators in the space and, you know, about their sustainability goals is, is you know, this kind of, you um, scope three and um you know really um having this trickle down into you know supply chains and, and procurement do you think that there is um a kind of a place for this you know zero touch automation and, and i and ai that you speak of you know kind of moving that into the you know supply chains you know outside of you know the immediate telco network so we eventually going to see that trickle down as well so uh, i'm while i'm not you know the the supply chain expert um, in, in the manufacturing of those products. I do know that, you know, especially within Siena, we take, you know, big pride of, of looking at our ecological and economical footprint end to end. So when it comes to sourcing components, how we use them, how we manufacture, um, it is it is a key element where, you know, you mentioned automation um, does not only help you to create really, you know, very superior quality of your products, it also helps you to optimize, you know, the use of, of energy, the use of labor, of course, and the use of, of components, which, you know, might also by itself have, you know, an economical impact in the way they were, they were um, 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 created or, or harnessed from, from the environment. Great, thank you. Thanks, Jürgen. Um, well, as the um, Chief Technology Officer um, for the region for a networking systems, services and software company, um, do you have any closing comments for our telecoms listeners today? So um, I personally believe that, you know, over the last couple of years, we have seen a lot of pledges towards greener, more sustainable networks. Um, we as a vendor community are definitely, you know, committed to driving um, innovation, technologies, new ways of, of uh, architecting and operating networks to make them available to our you know, service provider customers. But we believe, you know, having a seat at many of our operators' architectural and strategy tables, we need to work through this together to make sure that you know, the economical footprint, even with the explosion of, of bandwidth consumption, with the explosion of devices in the network, you know, do remain in balance and you know, still create the reliable, superior consumer experience and also enable all the machine-to-machine, -machine, AI, machine learning-based um, systems to optimize their footprint further. We are part of that. We are the underlying, you know, communication layer and we need to do our best to absolutely stay ahead of the game of being sustainable and remaining sustainable as the growth comes in. Very true. Yes. Thank you for that, Jürgen. Um, and just a quick one as well on your investors, because obviously we've spoken a lot today about the research that you guys had out um, and that very much looked at the kind of end users and the consumer's attitude um, towards sustainability in the industry. Um, but your investors as well must be responding to this because, you know, sustainability in environmental terms is 
pretty much the same as sustainability um, in financial terms these days, especially when we look at the longevity of businesses um, and to remain relevant in the future of sustainable networks and, you know, the future telecoms industry. Obviously, your investors are only going to be putting their money on safe bets. Yeah, de definitely. That's that's one of the big trends. And um, as, as I said earlier, I'm um, stay tuned for, you know, some very bold statements by our CEO to be made here over the next couple of weeks that further, you know, um, cement our commitment into, you know, delivering and operating as a sustainable and responsible player on this planet's ecosystem. Okay, I, I won't try to drag it out of you anymore, Jürgen. Thank you. That gives us a really, really good hint of what these announcements could entail. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, can't give you more at this point in time. <laughs> uh, well, it was great to chat today, and thank you so much for joining us. We are very excited to hear what happens over the rest of July. Um, but Jürgen Hattia, thank you so much for joining the Digital Digest this week. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie, Natalie, and Ellen. Appreciate the conversation. And that brings us to the end of this week's podcast and to the end of season two. Um, thank you to the team for bringing us the latest on all those stories um, and all the other stories that we have covered over the last 23 episodes. Um, thank you also to Jürgen for joining us today and to our other guests over the course of this series. And of course, a huge thank you to everybody who has listened. Um, we will return in September for series three of the Digital Digest. But before we take a break, a few reminders for the coming weeks. Um, June, July issue of Capacity Magazine is live online and features the 20 21 Women's Power List, as well as special reports on diversity, equity and inclusion, mobile, IoT and 5G and data cloud. Um, we also have nominations open at the moment for the Global Carrier Awards. They are open for the rest of July, so do get your nominations in before the deadline. Um, and if you have any questions, full contact details are on the form. We also have our investor list, as we mentioned, which is open for nominations until the 12th of July, with the full list due to be featured in the August-September issue of the magazine. And of course, it will soon also be International Telecoms Week. The official event kicks off in Washington, DC on the 29th of August. However, sessions will be going live on the event platform from the end of this month. To keep ahead on all of this over the coming seven weeks, don't forget you can sign up to our newsletters and follow us on social media. And if you have any news that you would like to share with us, please do get in touch via editorial at capacitymedia.com. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great summer, take care and catch you very soon.